So uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33, and uh, we'll go through the next part in this story uh, in, found in Genesis. It's been nearly a month uh, since we spent time in the book of Genesis, and uh, we've been making our way through one of the largest stories uh, embedded within the book, and that's the Jacob story. Uh, and when we get to Genesis 33, we come to one of the most significant moments in the Jacob story. It's the, the day when he uh, encounters Esau. So this is the Jacob-Esau encounter. If you remember the last time we were together, we, we learned that God had greatly weakened Jacob through an evening-long wrestling match the night before this. Yet there's no way for him to delay the encounter with Esau anymore. In Genesis 33, we... We'll read about this encounter, and I invite you to turn there if you haven't already, as we consider what happens when um, Jacob and Esau finally come together. Now, have you ever met two people before who couldn't get along? Uh, perhaps there are two people at work, uh, in the office or in the warehouse. Um, they talk about each other to other employees. Uh, they complain about each other to the boss. They say mean things to each other that makes everyone in the whole place feel uncomfortable and awkward and you just wonder what it is about them. Uh, how can they not get along in any way, shape, or fashion? Well, the last time Jacob and Esau were together, everyone knew that they hated each other. Jacob stole Esau's blessing from, Esau, or from uh, Isaac by deceiving his elderly father. You remember the story, he put uh, Esau's clothes on, he put hairy uh, skins on his neck and hands, uh, he uh, prepared a meal for Isaac, or his mother did, and then he, he gave it to him in order to steal his brother's right and inheritance. And because of that, Esau, the text says, hated Jacob and plotted away, or was planning a way to kill him after their father would, would die. And so today, in this passage, we come to the moment when these two brothers come back together. This story has two scenes to it. And I want to start with scene 1 in verses 1 through 11. And this first scene, that there are different movements within it. We start in verse 1 with Jacob meeting Esau. Look in your Bible at verse 1. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Here Moses vividly describes this ancient confrontation. We live in a world where we come upon people fairly quickly, sometimes 70 mile per hour or so. That was not the way things occurred in ancient times. This story advances slowly, and Moses pictures that development in verse 1. If you look down at verse 1, very vividly here, Jacob lifts up his eyes, he looks, he beholds, and Esau was coming. Uh, for me, when I read this text, I felt like it, it, it kind of reads like a figure in a Western movie, an old Western movie, who looks on the horizon and he sees the gang of, 
of people coming after him. They're coming on horses and there's a whole host of them and they're on their way, but it's taking them some time to catch up to them. Now, during these final moments, Jacob arranges his family for the encounter and it becomes obvious that he has favorites. He still has favorites. God hasn't worked in his life to eliminate this problem yet. And you can see that because he puts the concubines and their children first, then Leah and her children second, and then at the very end, he puts Rachel and Joseph last of all. I think he likely does this uh, with Rachel and Joseph uh, so that they would have the best chance to escape if something goes a little bit sideways in the confrontation. After arranging his family in this way, Jacob moves to the front to meet Esau himself first. And uh, I think that's a marked improvement in Jacob's life. This is a tribute to God's grace and what he's doing when Jacob decides at this point to take the leadership to protect his family and be near the front. I mean, before this, he kept pushing more and more people between him and Esau and herds and cattle and gifts. He doesn't want to see him face to face. But now when it comes to his family, he's willing to take the lead and protect and nurture and care for. This is not normal for Jacob. He's normally passive. But now God is at work in his life to lead and to nurture and to protect. And when Jacob gets in front with Esau and the 400 men coming, the text says that he bows himself seven times as he makes his way to Esau. And the act of bowing, of course, is an ancient practice to denote submission to him as to the older brother. This was a sign of respect to one who was socially more authoritative. Okay, so that's what Jacob does. Puts his family in an arrangement. He gets to the front. He starts bowing on his way to Esau. Now, how is Esau going to respond? It's been 20 years, right, of harboring a grudge. What's going to happen? Look in your Bible, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Well, this... Uh, part of the encounter involves Esau embracing Jacob. Here in verse 4, Moses describes uh, everything with five verbs. Esau ran, embraced, fell on his neck, kissed, and they wept. It's a brief description of an extravagant moment and response from Esau. After 20 years of doubt and fear in Jacob's life, everything breaks in this one very precious moment when his brother embraces him. Regarding this one moment, these five verbs, I want to ask one question I've been thinking about all week. Uh, Actually, for the good portion of several weeks since I preached last. And that is why. Why did Esau respond like this? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question. Or perhaps in this moment you could think, why why would Esau do this? What led him to respond like this? And I wish the text would clearly come out and tell us from a human perspective what had happened. I I think there are all kinds of different possibilities. 
from a human perspective, we, we don't know exactly what changed his heart. But there uh, are a number of solutions or combination of solutions that could explain it. It could be time, like his mother Rebecca had said. He says, you go away for a time and then when things are better, I'll call for you. Well, she didn't call for him, but maybe time healed this wound. We don't know for sure if that contributes in some way or another, but it's a possibility. It might also be that gifts, you know, the wave after wave of gifts and herds that uh, he had sent to him were impacting him and were in some way appeasing him. It could be the words that Jacob uses by calling himself a servant. And later on, he'll call Jacob, or he'll call Esau his Lord. So he says, I'm the servant, you're the Lord. It could also be his act of bowing. Jacob's act of obeisance or bowing. Maybe that pacifies him in some way or another. We don't know from a human perspective. But from a different perspective, I think it all makes sense because we understand that this is God's act or work in his life. This is a result of God's mercy and grace to Jacob and to humanity through God preserving Jacob's seed. And so uh, I think that's perhaps the best way to look at this passage. The best way to look at this passage is to, to recognize that the heart of Esau is in the hand of God. God can change someone's disposition entirely. And that's what he does in this passage. I like how one commentator, Ellen Ross, describes God's power in reconciliation, how it affects us. Ellen Ross said this, he said, If people would trust the Lord to deliver them, they would not be so anxious, so willing to relinquish that which God has given to them and done for them. They would face the difficulties of their lives with the expectation that the Lord would resolve the matter and that they could look back on such times with a triumphant acknowledgement of God's deliverance in their life. And so men and women, one of the things we take away from this narrative is that God can bring reconciliation in any relationship. He knows how to break through any tension or distance in any relationship that we have. Like this passage in this Old Testament narrative is one of the greatest tributes in all of the Bible to show that, that shows what God can do to bring harmony and reconciliation and resolve problems. Perhaps there's a, an offense between you and a friend or a family member that grieves you. You find yourself like Jacob. Maybe even in your case, you've attempted restoration in the past, but your friend or your family member was opposed to it entirely. They wanted nothing to do with it or with you. And so you're just left to reflect and pray. Well, might I say, men and women, don't lose heart. God can do this. Jesus can bring reconciliation to any disharmony that you experience. You must remember that he is the one who made peace through the blood of his cross. He's broken down the enmity between us and God, and he can do so between us and our friend or our acquaintance or our family member as well. 
I love that passage in Proverbs 21 and verse 1. It reads, the, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And so in God's hand, hands, I believe, are not only the heart of kings, but the hearts of all men and women, even those who oppose you or those who would fail to forgive you. God can do this with your enemies too. He can soften them like he did Esau. Or perhaps God can do this in your heart. Perhaps as we look at this text, you feel like you're more like Esau. You've been wronged. And you have to think now about how you would respond if that person who sinned against you so significantly would come back to you and seek repentance and forgiveness. It's interesting to me as we look through this text that we don't really know everything that happened in this encounter. What we have is accurate and true, but it's a summary. We don't know, for instance, if Jacob came forward and ever asked for forgiveness. We don't know, at least as far as I read here in the scripture, we don't know if Jacob portrays true biblical repentance. These are some of the questions I have with the text. But perhaps it's better to focus on what what we can see. What we can see is grace. Esau runs and hugs and kisses and weeps. Now to be clear with you, I, I don't even really know what to do with Esau in this passage or in other places of scripture. Esau is likely not even a true God-fearer. As I come to places like Hebrews in the, in the New Testament, I, I think he's likely a pagan. Yet God's grace is demonstrated to Jacob through Esau's response. God's grace can be demonstrated through us and our responses to others when we are ready to forgive them quickly. I'm mindful of two New Covenant verses here that just kind of God brought to my mind in the last few weeks as I was meditating upon this. One from Simon Peter and one from Paul the Apostle. Two charges to believers and and how they should be willing to love and forgive others. And so that one text is 1 Peter 4 and verse 8. And as Simon Peter is beginning to wrap up things in his first epistle, in verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, Above all else... Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So Simon is, is, is uh, he's using lofty language and he's describing something that's of more importance than, than everything else that he's mentioned in his epistle. Above all else, keep loving one another fervently, calling us to love. Be willing to cover a multitude of sins by the way we love. And then Ephesians 4 in Verse 32, I think of what Paul the Apostle says in that passage when he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we too can be quick to forgive, to run and hug and kiss and weep with those who've sinned against us too. When Jacob looked on Esau's face, he saw kindness and grace and love rather than anger. And when others look on our face, may they too 
see love and kindness and grace rather than anger. Now there's one last moment or movement in this reconciliation that occur, scene occurs in verses 8 through 11. This part formalizes the restoration. Look down in your Bible at verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. In these verses is a discussion of the gifts that Jacob had sent on ahead to Esau. The whole section in verses 8 through 11 is controlled by multiple references to the word grace or favor. So if you look in your Bibles at the middle of verse 8, you can see favor. And verse 10, you see favor again. I might find favor. And then verse 11, God is dealt graciously with me. The uh, speeches, the, the discussion back and forth between Jacob and Esau is also controlled by this little phrase that's found twice. It's the phrase, I have enough. So the very first words of Esau in verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough. And then at the end of Jacob's speech, at the uh, end of verse 11, he says, and because I have enough. These expressions are different only by one word in the original. Esau suggests he has much, and Jacob, that he has everything that he needs. But perhaps most important, uh, more important than these words, would be the words that Jacob uses to describe the gifts that he sent on ahead to his brother. So if you look in verse 10, in the middle of that verse, he says, accept my present. He calls these gifts, these herds, these animals, his present to him. But then in verse 11, he says, please accept my blessing. He uses a different word, blessing. I think that there's something that's happening here that's really important, and that is when he uses the word blessing. The word blessing in the book of Genesis is a very important word. It's used all throughout in different forms. Uh, Matter of fact, it's it's so important. My favorite commentary on Genesis, written by Alan Ross, is entitled Creation and Blessing. Because he believes that those themes, creation and blessing, are all throughout the book of Genesis. Well, we've seen the word blessing in places like Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to Abraham that he will be a blessing to the whole world because of God's grace to him. But we saw the word blessing seven times in Genesis 27. In Genesis chapter 27, that's the whole exchange where Jacob deceives Isaac to get the blessing. And there's seven times over and over and over again the word blessing is used. That's what that chapter is about. Now that word has not been used since Genesis 27. And so when Jacob uses it here, he introduces or pulls that theme and that concept back in here. When Jacob uses the word blessing to describe the gifts and the herds that he has sent on ahead to Esau, I believe he reveals that he is trying to pay recompense for what he stole from his brother. And so it's not just natural for him to to call this the blessing. But here it received accept the blessing of mine. 
One commentator agrees. He said this. He, he says, however, it's more than just a gift. In addition, it's Jacob's attempt to restore what he had taken from Esau and to show that he is a changed man. Having said this, I do believe that Jacob stops short of dealing with this relational sin in the way the New Testament would prescribe. I think instead of trying to appease Esau with gifts and herds and money or bowing before him in obeisance, he should admit his wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness. He might need to repay what he's taken, but he should repent and seek forgiveness. Uh, so men, as you uh, interact with your wife, it's, it's uh, perhaps not a terrible thing to try to give her flowers and chocolates and gifts to make up for all of the ways you've offended her, but it's more important to confess your sin to her, to repent of that sin, and to ask for forgiveness. Regardless here, Jacob does plead with his brother to accept the gift, and Esau relents. He, he takes it. And by ancient standards, there is some sort of reconciliation that occurs here. The tension is overcome with hugs and kisses and acceptance of these gifts. And I think this is a very overwhelming moment for Jacob. For in verse 10, when he describes this to Esau, he says uh, that seeing Esau in this moment, in this way, was like seeing the face of God. Oh, what relief Jacob must have felt in the loving and forgiving countenance of his brother. I've so enjoyed reflecting on Genesis 33 these last few weeks and uh, reflecting on the fact that God can do it. He can bring reconciliation to any damaged relationship. Uh, I hope it's been encouragement to you as well. Now, there is one other scene I want to look through quickly in verses 12 through 17. The end of the story where things get a little awkward, but we'll move quickly through it. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let us leave with you some of the people who are with me. So at this point in the story, you get this awkward exchange between these newly reconciled brothers. The wounds are freshly healed, but they're being gentle with one another. Esau offers protection to Jacob to go with him with the four men. Jacob politely refuses, okay? And he says, no, that will, that will slow you down too much. And then Esau counters by saying, well, let me leave some of the men here to protect you. But look in the middle of verse 15. But Esau said, what need is there? Or, but he said, what, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day um, on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Here, Jacob politely explains that they don't need protection from any of Esau's men and then pushes Esau to go back to Seir and then changes his direction and goes a different way. Here, Jacob's refusal and failure to go back with Esau bring up a question 
for me. It, it appears that he's being deceitful again. And as I, as I read through all the commentary literature, there's just all kinds of different explanations for this. But I think that the clearest reading of the text is that Jacob reverts back here to his former sinful ways in the passage. And he lies to his brothers. Instead of this, Jacob should have said something like this. He should have said, The God of our father has called me to go back to our homeland, to Bethel. And that's where I need to go. It's been great to be with you, Esau. And my heart is so overjoyed, but I need to follow the direction of the Lord in this. I think Jacob is weak in his faith here. He's unwilling to give him the whole truth. Sometimes we're weak in the faith too when we try to find ways out of situations with unbelievers by lying to them or covering our true intentions and purposes. But we don't need to be deceptive. We can just explain that it is our intention to obey our God. He is not only great, he is so good to us that we can always trust him. He brought reconciliation to us through the blood of his son. And he can do this with any relationship that we have. And he will care for us as we with integrity communicate to others what he's asking us to do. It's a blessed moment for us as we consider in this passage the God of reconciliation who came through for Jacob. I pray that the God of reconciliation will show himself strong for you as well will break down any sort of partition or division that you might be experiencing and would remind you that people's hearts are in his hands. He can do it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of walking through this passage of Scripture. I thank you for Genesis 33 and its picture of your power to bring the relief that reconciliation brings. Lord, we pray that you would do this for our body. We pray that you would do this uh, for us in damaged relationships that we might be experiencing. And we pray that we would, you would do this for the honor and glory of your own name. Lord, when we look upon your face, we see grace and kindness and love that we do not deserve and so I pray that as we move forward this week, when others look upon our countenance, that they would see grace and love and kindness and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.